The following is a presentation by The Tabernacle, a community of changed lives. For more information regarding service times, or if you would like to make a donation to The Tabernacle, you can do so by visiting our website at www.thetabchurch.com. be back in Judges. I don't know if you are. You're not. You're like, why can't we do something that's, uh, yeah, we're in the dark part of Judges, because we're in the dark part of winter. <laughs> Welcome to Michigan. Happy New Year, right? <laughs> My name is John. I'm one of the pastors. We want to welcome you to the Tabernacle, both here in Buckley and in Manistee, and, uh, and wherever you're tuning in, especially our boys in Cell Block C. We love those guys. Um, yeah. Thanks for uh, being here this weekend. We are jumping right uh, back into Judges because we're a church uh, that believes uh, that it's important to preach the Bible. And, and not that every church doesn't do that. We hope more churches do that. But It seems more and more there's so many people that just don't have a knowledge of the Bible and we're hungry to know the Bible. And so if you're wondering why we're still in Judges, weren't we in that in September? It's because we're not done with it yet, (laughs) right? And so we'll be in Judges. We're in starting Judges Part 2 this weekend and we'll be in that until about March. We took a little break for Christmas. That was fun, the biggest story. That was fun, was it not? But now there's a little breaking point and we get back into Judges. We got some heavy stuff uh, to get into um, this weekend, um, and we decided to change it to blue. So you're welcome, right? Before we do, I have one important announcement uh, for our church family, um, and it's just a reminder. I don't want to make it a big deal. I don't want to freak anybody out, but uh, the news in Texas kind of brought uh, to light how our culture is changing again with what, that horrible thing that happened last Sunday at a church where some people lost their lives. And so I want to remind you, I want to tell you two things. Number one, Uh, the Tabernacle, both campuses, is a gun-free zone. And that is for your safety, right? Now, it's a gun-free zone with only one exception. We have professionally trained members of an engagement team that take it upon themselves to keep our campuses as safe as they possibly can be. Our children uh, here within the service and in the third space. Now, they are not gun-free, right? Are you with me? And they're professionally trained. So here's the deal. God forbid anything ever terrible happens. But if something did, um, we want to know who's got one and who doesn't have one. Are you kind of tracking with me? Do I have to spell it out? I want to freak out the kids here. But uh, if, you don't, if you're not on the engagement team, you shouldn't have one, is what we're saying. Because if you do, they're going to find out and it won't be pretty. Make sense? Right? So 
we trust them, and more importantly, we trust God, and uh, uh, we should pray for that church in Texas, um, because what a horrible, horrible thing to happen on a weekend. And so uh, I'm thankful uh, for the men and some women that are part of our engagement team. They serve selflessly and quietly. They're super pro, and uh, I think we should give them a big hand, because they're awesome. And if you want to know who they are, um, they're the only ones not clapping. They're watching you. No, just uh, if you have a Bible, if you turn to uh, Judges chapter eleven, uh, we've got a heavy story to cover this weekend, and it is a happy new year. And hopefully, by the ending, it'll be a little bit uplifting, right? But in uh, the book of Judges, as you'll recall, it, it covers a dark period of time in the history of Israel. It was a time where there was no king, and a phrase that's repeated over and over and over in the book of Judges, where every man did kind of what he thought was right, what was right in his own eyes. And the problem is, is when we all do what we think is right in our own eyes, things go badly pretty quickly. They've forgotten God, the one who had given them this land, who had promised to bless them, who who had entered into relationship with them. And when men and women in the book of Judges or men and women, young people and students in 2020 start taking matters into our own hands and just start saying, you know what, this seems good to me, I'm going to do it. If it doesn't measure measure up with God's will in God's word, we can get sideways really, really quick. And so this is, as we get into the second half of Judges, you're going to see just how bad it can get. I'll start in uh, uh, verse 1 of chapter 11, and we'll jump around just a little bit. Here's how the story goes. It says, now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, I think that's how you say that, <laughs> was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, They drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. That's a new one. You're not going there. All right. So then Jephthah fled from his brothers, lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So we'll just pause right there. Jephthah is the son of Gilead, but there's a problem with his bloodline, at least according to their culture, is he's born out of wedlock, right? So uh, his father uh, has a wife, but he's also uh, taking up with a prostitute. So Jephthah is born out of his father's sin. And so instead of his father taking responsibility for his sin, caring for him, what have you, we see his brothers allowed to drive him away from the family. And so there's a couple things about Jephthah that are important is he's a mighty warrior, right? So he's a big deal. He's good at fighting. He's a soldier. He'd probably be on the engagement team if he was here. I don't know, right? And uh, Jephthah, because he's the son of a prostitute from outside of the family, his brothers gang up on him and drive him away. So he goes and he lives in the land of Tob, where it says uh, he collects a bunch of worthless fellows, right? So another translation could be a bunch of barbarians or outlaws. He's a pirate leader of an outlaw gang, right? This is Jephthah. Are you with me? All right. We're not going back to Christmas, so just get over yourselves, all right? We're going. All right. So verse 4. 
After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. And so we see Jephthah is judge number eight in all of the judges that we're going or that we have covered. There's 12 in all that we will cover, but he's judge number eight. And the way it, the way we just read, the way it played out is, is when, when things were good, they didn't want anything to do with them. But now when things were bad, all of a sudden they need a mighty warrior. They need somebody who's good at fighting. They need someone that can lead them into battle. And so they go and find this guy. They beg him to come home. And he's playing the kind of hard to get. Oh, so now you like me? Now you don't care that my mother was a prostitute and I'm outside the family? No, we're sorry, big deal. You can be judge if you'll come back. Are you tracking so far? And so this is how this judge is raised up by God to lead the people. In the verses that follow, uh, what Jephthah does is he sends a messenger to the Ammonite king. And he actually, even though he's a mighty warrior and he's leading the armies of Israel, he actually tries diplomacy. Maybe we can work this out. And so there's a big debate. You can read about it on your own where they go back and forth with messages with the Ammonite king. But the Ammonite king isn't buying it. It says in verse 28, It says, but the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Verse 29, then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead and from Mizpah to Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them and the Lord gave them into his hand and he struck them from, what is that word? Aroer to the neighborhood of Minnith, 20 cities and as far as Abel Karamim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. So to summarize that, God gives Jephthah and Israel a huge victory. If you remember back before Christmas, where we ended in chapter 10, is all of Israel repented before the Lord. They said, do with us whatever you will. Just give us a leader. We're being oppressed. God raises up Jephthah, this barbarian outlaw pirate leader, and he comes in to lead them. He makes a vow right before the fight. God, if you'll do this, the first thing out of my house, I'm gonna offer as a sacrifice to you. 
And then there's a great victory. And this is where the story gets ugly. Verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. This is God's word. This is horrendous. What a horrible, happy New Year story. It's not even funny. God gives a great victory. And remember, he'd made this tragic vow. We're out of his mouth. He says, I'm going to sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my household. And when he comes home with the victory, with the big parade, he got the army, everyone's excited. Here he is. Boom. There she is. He's had the victory. He's vowed to God. Child sacrifice? And it's interesting, as I, I've studied and prepared, I, I've, I've actually watched some Christians try to get around this and be like, oh no, that's actually, uh, uh, you know, he, he basically said she could never get married. That's why she was mourning her virginity. No, she was mourning the fact that he was going to offer her as a burnt human sacrifice to God because he couldn't control his mouth. I've heard other people say, well, he had no idea. He thought maybe a goat would come out. I don't think so. He's a big man with a big house with a lot of servants, whether it was animal or human. Whatever was going to come out, he felt like he needed to make some kind of a deal with God. And we get to preach on Judges 11 and try to figure out what does this have to do with the God of love and mercy and grace? What does this have to do with Jesus, right? There's some things that Jephthah didn't understand. And the first thing is not just something that Jephthah doesn't understand. I think it's something we don't understand. Thousands of years later, we're, we have to come to grips with these same lessons. The first one is this, is that culture poisons my view of God. Culture poisons my view, our view of God. I don't think we realize how deeply we are influenced by our culture. 
Culture has more of an influence on students, more of an influence on students that grew up and got wrinkly. Uh, uh, Culture has more of an influence on all of us, unfortunately, than the Bible does without even knowing it. The things that we watch, the things that we see, the people that we work with, the culture that we're born into and that we're a part of, it has a way, whether it's our superstitions and things that we think about God or the way we think God thinks about us. And and the reason I say Jephthah didn't understand that, Jephthah was living in a time where idol worship and human sacrifice were rampant. Idol worship and human sacrifice were rampant. This wasn't uncommon for people that worship Baal or Molech or the Ashtoreths to do. So even though he's a judge, even though later in the book of Hebrews it says that Jephthah was a man of faith, he was influenced by the culture. And so that wasn't a big thing. I mean, it was a horrible thing. I mean, we see that he's sad. He didn't want to give up his one and only daughter, probably the apple of his eye. He says, you've brought me low. You've caused me so much distress. And then his daughter, I'm I'm sorry, I'm not the daughter of Jephthah, but if I was and I heard what the vow is, I'm running for the hills. Sorry about you, dad. I just became a runaway. Like a song from Journey. I don't know, forget it. That was an 80s reference, right? I'm out. I'm out. But her thing is, oh, we have to appease. She's influenced by culture too. She's poisoned by it. Oh, let me have this little, uh, you know, last slumber party in the mountains with my girlfriends and then you can offer me as a human sacrifice? Culture's totally poisoned. And Jephthah's in a violent culture where life is cheap and human sacrifice is common and he's totally poisoned by that. We're poisoned too by culture. There's two ways that culture poisons us right now. Please don't miss this because it's important for us. We have to always filter culture through scripture. For some of us, the way culture poisons us is it causes us to retreat from the world, right? It causes us to retreat. We see how bad things are. We see that, that, that there's a poisonous influence of culture, whether it's, whether it's influencing us with our sexuality or it's influencing us with how we spend or if it's influencing us with our priorities, what's most important. You know, I'm a coach and I coach a lot of uh, uh, students and I see parents that, that are so worked up about making sure that their kid is playing all the right sports all year round, spending hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars so their kid can get a scholarship to college. By the time the kid's ready to go to college, he doesn't even like sports. He wants to be a chef. I don't know where chef came from, but you understand what I'm saying? But somehow it's been drilled into their head that that's what's important. So some of us, we retreat from culture. We say, I don't want anything to do with culture. We're not going to listen to the culture's music. We're not going to dress like the culture. We're not going to leave the house. We're going to dig a bunker. You know, if, 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 if there's lights in a church or drums, well, that's culture and culture's bad. And so we retreat and we become a church that's stuck in the dark ages. We start believing that the only worship songs that count are from people that have been dead for 200 years. As if no more worship songs can ever be written since the time of John Wesley. You've been poisoned by culture. But you've been poisoned into a way of thinking that you have to, unlike Jesus, totally retreat from culture. Did Jesus totally retreat from culture? Sorry, am I talking too fast? I'll ask Manistee. Did Jesus retreat from culture? No, he entered into culture. The culture didn't poison him. 
The culture, if we know God's word and his spirit lives in us, his word says, greater is he that is in me than he who is in the world. And so we need to be in culture so that we can influence culture. But the second way that culture poisons my view of God is when I embrace the culture, right? When I want to look just like the culture, when I want to be accepted by all my friends, well, everyone's doing it. I read an article this week and it was talking, I don't want to be too graphic, but I'm going to be graphic just for a minute because if we don't talk about the pulpit, we're never going to talk about it. Where it's become commonplace for young people to text each other naked pictures of each other, right? Before they even go on a date. That's not normal. That's wrong. But adults are doing the same thing. Where do you think they learned it from? We're not supposed to embrace culture and just accept the sexual standards of culture. We're called to be different. And so we can get poisoned by culture and it poisons how we view God. Jephthah saw God as somebody that he needed to appease with a human sacrifice. It wasn't good enough that God's power was going to help Jephthah ride the fine line, not retreating and not embracing, that God was going to be with him. He had to think in his mind that I got to offer something up, that I got to somehow pay God back if he gives me the victory. And he was poisoned by his culture, and so was his daughter. Romans chapter 12 says that we need new minds. It says, I urge you, therefore in view of God's mercy, to offer yourself as living sacrifices, that we should be renewed in our minds, right? We need new minds, the mind of Christ. And the only way to do that is to go through judges for six months because we need God's word, right? Culture poisons my view of God. Here's the second thing that Jephthah didn't understand. And I believe in large part, many of us don't. Understand, And we don't understand it because we've been poisoned by culture. We love the way the world does. We, we negotiate the way that the world negotiates. We live on a system of, if you do this for me, I will do this for you, right? If you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. You bless me, I'll bless you. You hold the door for me, I'll hold the door for you, right? We live transactionally. That's our culture. God's not that way. Jephthah didn't understand, and we don't understand, that God does not negotiate. God does not negotiate. God doesn't make deals. He's God. The reason God doesn't negotiate is because God doesn't need anything. Scripture tells us that he created the world and and even man, we cannot create temples or or all the temples we create by human hands can't house him. He doesn't need anything from us. Who are we to serve God? He doesn't need anything. So God does not negotiate. The problem is, is we try to negotiate with God all the time. So I'm a child of the 80s. Uh, my kids and I, we were having a conversation in the kitchen, you know, during Christmas break. Those are always the greatest conversations. And we're trying to figure out who's in generation what and this. And, and because they may or may not have been calling me a boomer. <laughs> Although I will turn 50 this year, I am most definitely not a boomer. My father is a boomer. I am Gen X, yo, right? <laughs> I'm Gen X. And so we were talking about, you know, the different generations and, and, uh, um, 
One of the things that I remember being a child was born in the 70s, but really kind of paying attention in the 80s, is that's when terrorism uh, really just started to pop off all over the world. And at the time, one of my favorite presidents, Ronald Reagan, the last line of the 20th century, uh, he came out with this line that's become part of our culture. And he basically said, the United States does not negotiate with terrorists. We don't do deals with terrorists. You guys remember that? I'm not being poli-sci. Don't worry about this. Well, check it out. God doesn't negotiate with terrorists either. And I can be a little terrorist. And my sin, my vice, my motives, what drives me, Jephthah didn't understand he didn't need to negotiate with God because he couldn't negotiate with God. And so the reason he made a tragic vow, influenced by his culture, he goes, if you will do this for me, God, I will do this for you. What a terrible thing. That cost him his one and only child. His one and only child. And by the way, God is strangely absent from chapter 11. God did not ask him to sacrifice his unnamed daughter. He was going to give the victory anyways. His people, his judge, his plan, victory. Not only that, after his daughter was the first one out, he never bothered to ask God to let him out of the vow. He didn't even consult him. Do you understand where we're going? This was all Jephthah. This was all a problem that he made, a promise God didn't ask for, and I don't believe God expected him to keep. There's only one sacrifice that God asks from us. Back then and today, self-sacrifice. Like I said in Romans 12, he desires that we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. He wasn't expecting a child. This was all Jephthah, and Jephthah's trying to negotiate with a God that won't negotiate. God does not negotiate. I mean, how many times do we say, God, if you'll just do this, then I'll serve with tab kids. (laughs) God, if if I give generously, then you must... God doesn't negotiate. Many times we hear God's call, He's pushing us to to go, to give, to forgive, to step out, to take that next step of faith. And we find ourselves saying, okay, God, all right, I think you're telling me to do this. But if you do this and this and this, then I'll know. God does not negotiate. You go the first time. And what I found in my life, that when God speaks, if I don't respond, he stops speaking until I do. No, 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 tell me something different. God, I'll get to that when I get to that. Can you teach me something different? I want to hear your voice here. He told you that thing the first time. God does not negotiate. He doesn't negotiate. There's one way to have a relationship with God, and that's through Jesus Christ. There's one way. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. There's one way through faith in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That's the only way. And when he calls us to obedience... He doesn't stutter. He doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't negotiate. Jephthah didn't understand it, and we don't get it. And his terms are not unreasonable. 
Heidi Burgess, who's uh, Pastor Tim's wife, uh, sometimes she comes up with the greatest one-liners. And we were talking about this just this weekend. Uh, Psalm 103 says about God that he remembers our frame. He remembers that we are dust, right? I think we've quoted that before. Isn't that a beautiful psalm? It's Psalm 103 where he says, God remembers that you and I are made from dust. And Heidi said this. She goes, you know what? God has realistic expectations of dust. He's got realistic expectations of dust. He's not going to ask you to do something he hasn't already done himself. He's not going to ask you to go anywhere that he's not willing to go. He's not going to ask you to give anything that Jesus didn't give. He's not going to ask you to go or give or serve or to obey in any way that without his help you cannot do. He doesn't negotiate. He has realistic expectations of dust. Jephthah didn't get that. He didn't get that. That's what leads to this horrible happy new year story. So what's the point? In a reverse way, this is also Jephthah. This is also us. Jephthah didn't believe in a God of love and a God of grace and a God that just wanted to bless Israel and his leadership just because. That was the furthest thing from his mind. Because he's poisoned by culture. Don't miss this. He's poisoned by his culture. Transactional, uh, you know, idol worship involving human sacrifice. A violent culture. He's poisoned there. Right? He's trying to negotiate a good deal with God because that's what you do with Baal and Molech and Ashtoreth. He doesn't understand a God that just wants to bless just because. So for us, I think the big message is simply this. Trust God to love and bless you. Boy, when I wrote that down to have it put on the slides, I almost felt like a prosperity gospel preacher. But I don't think there's more of a true statement than that. You can trust God to love you. You can trust God to bless you. Why is it that we don't trust God to love us? I have more conversations with people that are still trying to determine whether or not they're saved. And maybe it's because they're family of origin. Maybe it's because of what they've experienced in life. But, you know, they've prayed the prayer a thousand times, but they just don't feel saved. And it's because I don't believe they trust God's love for them. How many times does he have to say it? How many times does he have to show it? How many times? I mean, Jesus died on a cross to prove it. You can trust God to love you. You can trust him to love you. I don't know if this makes any sense, but I've told more than one person, man, if you're still worried about whether or not you're saved, you're probably saved. You just don't trust God's love yet because people that aren't saved, they're not worried about it. They're not stressing over it. So we can trust that there's a God who loves us lavishly, a God who loves us recklessly, a God who understands that we are dust and gives us his mercy and God gave us Jesus for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. How many different ways can he say, I love you, I love you, I love you. But here's the second part. Trust God to love you and bless you. Most of us really can't accept the second part of that statement. That there is a God that wants to bless you just because. 
He desires to bless you. He wants to lavish you with blessing. And this isn't where I ask you to write a check and send it to my P.O. box. God wants to bless us. In Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, right? That beautiful prayer written by David. There's a line that I've never focused on, honestly, until this week. That line that says, and surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Another translation says, surely goodness and mercy, that's blessing, will pursue me all the days of my life. I think it's Psalm 37 that says, if we delight in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. Here's a, we love and serve a God that wants to love and bless you back. He wants to bless you. He wants what's best for you. The problem is, is we don't know what a real blessing is. We think blessing is, you know, being rich and living forever. Like, can you imagine living forever in this place? Yuck. But blessing, his blessing is going to be better, and it's something that he wants to do. Just let that wash over you for a minute. That God wants to love you. Well, he does love you. He wants you to trust that he loves you. But God wants to bless you. All through the Psalms, he talks about this. That this is the God that we serve. Jephthah didn't get it. And here's Jephthah, son of a prostitute, outsider. He's a half-breed. He's got the wrong blood. He's been pushed out. And God plucked him out of nowhere. Wrong heritage. Wrong skill set. Nobody loves him. God did. And he plucks him out of nowhere. And he makes him the judge. Because God loved him and God wanted to bless him. I'm going to put the outsider in charge. Isn't that just like God? I'm going to take the barbarian and put him in charge. I'm going to take the outlaw pirate. Here's Captain Jack. Boom, right there. He's going to lead Israel. But he couldn't believe or trust in a God who loved him and wanted to bless him. Enough to say that was enough. And just receive. And go win the victory and celebrate with his daughter. No, it has to end in this dark period. That's to end. Friends, we can't be poisoned by culture. We have to remember that God doesn't negotiate. And we have to believe. We have to trust. In 2020, trust God to love and bless. What if that was to happen for you? You don't have to cut corners anymore. You don't have to make deals. He's not going to make deals. You don't have to work for your righteousness. He's already won it on the cross. He just wants you to be the object of his love and receive his blessing. And we live our lives in response to that. What if that was your New Year's resolution? (laughs) Trust God to love and bless you. You know, um, I've been to Niagara Falls twice that I can recall. Have you ever been to Niagara Falls? Just raise your hands here in Manistee. Who's been to Niagara Falls? Sweet, yeah. Niagara Falls is like just an amazing place to go. And I know it's all commercial. And what's better, the American side, Canadian side? I don't care. All I know is this. Every minute, 186 tons of water go tumbling over those, uh, those falls. Can we put a picture up of that? That's Niagara Falls. 186 tons of water every minute are falling right there. Pretty impressive, huh? 
What if you were to conceive of this? That that's a picture of the love and the blessing that God wants to pour out on you. On you. That's not what culture says. Culture says you're not good enough. Culture says you've got to negotiate. No, you don't. You can't give him anything. All you can do is receive. What if you were just to receive that love and that blessing? And just trust that God has your good in mind. That he knows what's best. So I can face whatever tomorrow has, whatever next week has, whatever happens in my battle with my Ammonites, whether he gives the victory or not. He loves me. He wants to bless me. That's what the Bible says. And this isn't even a good enough picture of how much love and blessing God wants to give to you, to me. What if we were to trust that in 2020? In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. And as we prepare our hearts, I wonder if we could do it just a little bit different, both here and in Manistee this weekend. Is, you know, if you want, when we prepare our hearts for communion, those of us who are Christians, we usually bow our heads, spend a moment in prayer, confess sin if there's sin between us and God, make a clean slate of things. We're not supposed to receive communion in an unworthy manner. And by the way, if you're not a Christian, the, 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 you know, you could sit this one out, or if you're not interested in forgiving or confessing sin, just this isn't a good time to or a good weekend maybe to take communion. If you're not a Christian, we invite you. If you want to become one, you're certainly welcome to join in this sacrament. But I'm wondering if for some of us, we may want to reflect on that just for a moment. I know the screen's not a perfect picture, and it's just not even a speck of God's love and blessing for us. But if we could just dial in right there, what if God wanted to love and bless me that much and just pour it out on me? Do I trust that? Do I believe that? Would you just spend a moment preparing your heart to receive the Lord's Supper first thing in 2020? Bible tells us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, after the meal with his disciples, he took bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. And they also took a cup and he said that the cup represented a new covenant of his blood a covenant between God and man that if by faith we believe in what Jesus did on the cross, the smallest shred of faith, that we can have a relationship with him. And we're reminded also by the Bible that from now, or from that moment until now, until he comes again, when we take communion, when we take the bread and the cup, it reminds us of what Jesus did on the cross. The first of the blessings and the best of the blessings that he wants to pour out on us. So if you're not a Christian, but you want to become one, we invite you tonight to celebrate this with us.
And those of you that are Christians, we'll invite you as well. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you've done for us. We're not worthy. We can't pay you back. We can't negotiate. God, would you forgive me for the times I've retreated from culture and from the times I try to be like the culture? God, would you help us to remember we can't negotiate with you. There's nothing we can give you that you don't have. Would you help all of us in this year to trust your love for us and your desire to pour out blessing on us? Blessing that scripture says we wouldn't even believe it if we knew and were told. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, the one who makes it possible. Amen.